I want you to imagine with me that we're on together a tour of an art museum. We're gathered in a large hall as we're given maps of the various kinds of art that we can go look at. And we learn that there's different sections within the art museum. There's the realism section, which is the art that pictures reality, the kind of painting that you would see a mountain and think, man, that's gorgeous. There's a section called photorealism, which is the kind of art that's so close to reality that when you look at it, you're like, wait, is that a photo or is that a painting? And then there's another section, abstract art, where if you have a kid that goes with you, they're prone to go, what is that, right? Has meaning, but it's hidden sometimes and seems a little odd, thus the name abstract. And then there's another section, the impressionist section, which uses small little brush strokes intended to communicate a bigger picture. And together, as a group, you may want to go to the other sections, but we're gonna go to the Impressionist section. In particular, we're gonna look at some Claude Monet paintings. We get into the Claude Monet section and the tour guide tells us, now in order to understand Impressionistic art, you need to know that these small brush strokes are really intricate, but if you get too close to the painting, you'll miss the point of what Monet was trying to communicate. In fact, an Impressionist painting is best viewed at about 10 feet from the actual piece of art. It's designed to be that perfect space where you can see the intricacy, but you can also see the picture. Move too close, you'll miss the picture. Move too far away, you'll, move the, you'll miss the beauty of what an impressionistic piece of art is all about. So when you're in an art museum and you're on a tour and you're in the impressionist section of that museum, it's not only important to know what kind of art you're looking at, but also it's important to know where you are standing. Some commentators suggest that the book of Revelation needs to be seen as impressionistic painting. There's intricacies that are so incredibly beautiful, but if you get too close, you, you miss the message. You get too far away and you miss the imagery and the beauty. The book of Revelation sends a message, but it doesn't deliver that message like the book of Romans or like the Psalms. The Apostle Paul is logical and linear. David is emotional and poetic. Revelation is apocalyptic, which means a message is communicated through what is revealed or what is seen. John is given a command in verse 11. It's the title of my sermon, write what you see. He's given a vision that is designed to speak to our imagination. The book of Revelation pulls back the curtain to show us what is really happening and to show us what is really going to happen. But this book is more than a textbook on the future. It, it is that, it is a textbook on the future, but it's more than that. It's a book that comforts. It's a book that motivates in order to help Christians endure hardship by dreaming about what's really going on, about what's really going to happen. So our text today begs the question, what do you see? 
And where you are in how you see Revelation makes all the difference in the world. Like an impressionistic painting, the book of Revelation has some layers to it. So today what I want to do is to ask ourselves three key questions about this text from Revelation 1, 9 through 20, three questions. Now, if I were to choose these questions exegetically or coming right out of the text, my outline or my questions would be these. Where is John? Who is Jesus? And what is he called to do? So who is John? Or rather, where is John? Who is Jesus? And what is he called to do? But what I want to do is I want to change that outline a bit because part of the challenge in studying Revelation, and we're going to have to keep this in mind throughout the entire study of the book, is it can be so technical and so imaginative that we forget this book was meant to work where you live right now. This book was meant to help you. Like you made it another week. Good job. You got to church. You're listening. You're, you're leaning into the Bible this book is meant to help you. So I want to bend my outline towards application with these three points. Where are you? Who is Jesus? And what's next? Who are you? Where are you? What's going on? These are all the questions in play and today, I wanna focus on just three. Where are you, who is Jesus, and what's next? So first, where are you? This book has a context, and it's meant to be lived in every generation. And in verses nine through 12, we see the background and the situation in which the book of Revelation was recorded. Verse nine identifies that the apostle John is the author of the book. We read last week, in verse four, the same thing, but it's different. In verse four, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It sounds like a letter, and it is a letter. But now we see in verse nine, it shifts. John is more like a reporter writing about what he sees and experiences. He's, he's not an academic bystander. Revelation is written on the front lines for the front lines. He's immersed in what he's writing about. So as we study this book, can I encourage you to allow your imagination and your emotions to be drawn into this book. Don't just study what is here, feel what is here. John describes himself as their brother and partner in verse nine. Notice he's positioning himself here as someone who is alongside them and participating with those to whom he is writing. Now that's not only important for John and for the seven churches to whom he writes, but that's also important for you. It's important for me. Because we need to read Revelation through the lens of how this book applies and helps us in our generation. If you're a Christian, do you know that it was God's will for you to be born, to trust in Jesus, to be gifted by the Spirit, and to live in this generation. Of all of the resources of souls that God had to implant in that little zygote in your mother's womb, he put those things together and you're here in 2022. Wow. Every Christian in every moment of history has to wrestle with this reality. Why am I here? Why now? 
what in the world do I do? If you're listening today and you're not a Christian, I trust you also know that nothing in your life happens by accident, including hearing this message. You may have come because you're curious about the book of Revelation. We're glad you're here. Every Christian is also curious. If you're not a Christian, you need to ask yourself, why are you here? God's writing a story, and my guess is even this message today is part of his divine plan for you to understand the big story narrative of the Bible. So John is a brother and a partner, but notice what he's a brother and partner in. This next phrase is very important. Partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's a very important phrase. It really is connected to the theme of the entire book. So he says that he's a brother and partner in tribulation. What John does here is acknowledge that there's a reality of living in the world that involves suffering. Jesus promised his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. So John acknowledges, I'm, I'm in the middle of suffering and hardship. He also says in the kingdom. He highlights that his life is lived for another realm, another kingdom. He's on Patmos, but he has his eyes set on another kingdom. He's, in, he's on the island of Patmos because he's lived for that other kingdom. Something has made the emperor Domitian mad enough to banish John to the exile that he's in. And later on we learn it's because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So as John lived for that kingdom, he came in collision with the kingdom of this world kind of mindset that's reflected in Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, with this, we come to our first of many applications of theological triage. Remember I mentioned this last week, things that are absolutes, Jesus is coming again, you must believe that. Convictions, is there a literal millennium? Is that kingdom now, is there a literal seven years tribulation or is that now, like, we need to understand the differences between all of those. We'll learn later about what's called the Great Tribulation. We'll learn later about what's called the Millennial Kingdom. And some tr theologians believe that that tribulation is right now. Others think that it's yet to come. Some think that the kingdom is now. Others think that that Millennial Kingdom is literally to be expected in the future. Regardless of where Christians land on that, two things must be understood. First, if you're a Christian, whether you think that tribulation is coming later and it's gonna be intensification of the present world and present reality in which we live, you must all believe and understand this. To be a Christian means you should expect suffering. You should, be, you should expect to be in opposition to the world in which we live. Some of us, one of the most helpful things that you could do right now in your life is stop being surprised that your life is hard. You're spending a lot of energy being surprised that things are so difficult. You're like, what? This isn't what I expected. Well, you're, maybe, newsflash, may, I say this lovingly, maybe, <laughs> let me change my tone. Maybe your um, expectations were 
just a little off of what it meant to follow Jesus. Because some of us thought, when I, when I accepted Jesus, I mean, I got the abundant life. What you don't know is the abundant light is the afflicted life. Kingdom. There's an element where, surely now, even right this is an element of the kingdom, and whether you think this is the kingdom or there's a bigger kingdom to come, the new heavens and the new earth in all of its fulfillment or a thousand year millennial reign, what we need to acknowledge is that this little gathering of God's people at 96th in town is a little taste of the kingdom. We're here with people of all different walks of life, different socioeconomic status, different ethnicities, and here we are singing worthy, worthy. And it's good to be reminded that in the midst of a society filled with all kinds of raucous divisions that there's an hour or so that some people gather and say, yeah, my king is Jesus and I love these people. So tribulation and kingdom and then patient endurance. Again, this is so important. It's two words in my Bible. It's one word in the original language. It's the word hupomone, and it means to bear up under something. The goal of the book of Revelation is to help you to bear up under hardship and difficulty. The goal of this book is to help you endure. One of the strategies of the church needs to be that we are simply going to outlast the devil. Throw what he may at us, persecute the church, officially or unofficially, we're just gonna make it and we're gonna endure all the way to the end. You may not be able to fix the problems and there are many that you'll never be able to fix until Jesus comes, but you can decide you're not gonna quit. You can decide that I'm gonna endure all the way to the end. There is a countdown clock on the devil's activity. We don't know what that clock is or what, how much time is on the clock, but make no doubt, make no mistake and have no doubt about it. There is coming a day when zero, zero, zero is gonna hit that scoreboard and Jesus is gonna say, yeah, you're done. And my people win. Tribulation, kingdom, endurance, and then in Jesus, don't miss this because it encircles the previous three. Tribulation and kingdom and endurance are all of what it means to be in Jesus. So for some of us, what's happening in this study and in your life right now is you're having a reconstruction of what it means to really be a Christian. You thought, if I come to Jesus, then I get heaven and I get to turn away from hell. Awesome, great deal. You didn't know that what you also signed up for was the fact that you get to be a follower of Jesus in a world that's broken and hostile. And to be a follower of Jesus means that you embrace the kingdom to come and the hardship that is now. Verse nine continues, we see that John is on the island of Patmos. He's there on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Historians tell us that John was temporarily exiled to this island during the reign of Nero Domitian. 
And it must have been that during this time, persecution was starting to increase. It wasn't at this point in time like state-sanctioned persecution like during the days of Nero. Instead, and this may sound familiar, instead there was increasing and social pressure in particular regions around the known world to participate in the pro-Roman imperial cult. Emperor worship was seen as a loyalty test And this loyalty test of emperor worship put Christians in increasingly challenging positions, especially in particular areas around the Roman Empire, and in some cases, they were banished or canceled from civic life, from guilds to commerce, because they weren't willing to tow the nationalistic, pro-Roman, imperial, cultic mindset. There was this pressure. They felt like the walls were closing in. It was hard to put their finger on, couldn't necessarily know exactly what it is. It's no edict, it's no declaration, but just the sense that the world in which they lived, they were increasingly feeling like, I think we're exiles. Verse 10, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is more than just telling us what day he's worshiping or the manner in which he's worshiping, it's connected to Old Testament language, like in the book of Ezekiel, where a prophetic vision is coming. The text tells us that he is in the spirit. He hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. He's not just describing what is happening. That is true, but it's also connecting it to the loud trumpet on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. So what's happening is revelation is pulling from all kinds of Old Testament illusions and metaphors. This is the final word in the Bible. It's the final word about Christ, the final word about scripture, the final word about the end times. And John's vision is pulling from all of these beautiful images. What he hears, verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Cyrus, or Sardis rather, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are seven churches, literally seven churches who all had their strengths and weaknesses. They, they represent all churches. Next week, we'll start a journey of looking at those churches. We've got seven lampstands, actually eight. We've got an eighth over there. The reason the eighth lampstand is there is for you to be reminded, what would God say to College Park Church? What would he say? What would be his commendation? What would be his critique? The book of Revelation is this unfolding of what John sees. He's told, write what you see. John is going to experience something incredible and it's meant to help him and the other churches endure. This book is meant to help you endure, Christian. So where are you? Like, where are you? Perhaps you've sensed a growing tension in what it means to follow Jesus recently. Maybe you're a student, you went back to school and you realize your views about a host of things are not the normative view around the lunch table. Maybe you're at work and you are feeling a renewed pressure to affirm particular lifestyles or perspectives and you're thinking, man, when am I gonna draw the line? And what does that mean? Maybe you look around and you feel this low-grade sense that you're, you're, you're just a 
you're just different and you're in exile or you're a student on a college campus and you look at the sea of humanity at a football game and, or a big event and you wonder, how many people believe what I believe that are here? Or maybe you've wondered about a spiritual battle that seems to be raging in your life. Can I just encourage you, Christian, this book is for you. Can I encourage you to pray the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. When you come on Sunday, I wanna encourage you to look around and ask yourself, where am I? I'm in church. What do I see? I see other Christians. What am I singing about? I'm singing about the worthiness of Jesus. And then ask yourself, how does this help me make it? Because we need more than information from this book. We need more than explanation. We need more than learning or knowledge. We need a vision. We need to see something. Or maybe better, we need to see someone. The man behind the curtain. And we need to see him right where we are. So, Where are you? Who's Jesus? Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. So this pattern for John is gonna continue all throughout the book. He hears something, he turns, and what he sees is not what he expects. Like that thing, that turning piece is gonna appear all throughout Revelation, and it's gonna be surprising. The the first thing that John sees are seven golden lampstands. Now, we wonder about a lot of symbols in the Bible, but we don't have to wonder about these. Verse 18 clearly tells us that the lampstands are the churches. So here is John seeing these seven golden lampstands, and then he describes him as the son of man. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, for us, in our Western American culture, son of man doesn't evoke any emotional categories for us. But this term had a context. Like, for instance, if I said to you, please welcome the commander in chief. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if I said, I was walking on the church sidewalk over here and I found a Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, you know what that means. For those of you who don't, that's a $100 bill. You may have not ever seen one, but it's a $100 bill. (laughs) So that term is connected to something else. That's what son of man is because it's connected to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter seven where Daniel sees someone that he calls the son of man who is a messenger, a divine messenger, and he also sees someone called the Ancient of Days. In fact, listen to Daniel 7 and verse 9 about the Ancient of Days. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. 
What John does here is he takes the idea of the son of man, who is this divine messenger, and the ancient of days, and he collapses them together in the book of Revelation, in effect to say it's the same person. The divine messenger is the ancient of days. Look at Revelation 1.13. He's clothed with a robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Notice, like, 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 like. John is doing the best he can. What's going on here is John turns, he hears this voice, right? He turns, he sees these lampstands, and he sees this one who's in the middle of these lampstands. We see the role of Jesus as prophet and priest and king. We see him as entirely pure, that he sees everything. He's authoritative and he's powerful, but that's not all. John sees seven stars in his right hand. Imagine this a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face so bright that it shines like the sun. This vision is meant to be glorious and massive and a call to action and mobilization. It is an image of a mighty conqueror. It's the image of Christ as the sovereign warrior. You don't have a two-edged sword coming out of your mouth with a sense of bringing peace. Now this is important for two reasons. First, this vision shows us a different vision than the world that we live in. There are times, if we're honest, that it seems as though worldly, earthly emperors are all powerful. It seems as if our exile is always lonely and is as if the devil is constantly winning. Eugene Peterson writes this, prior to the vision, St. John is on the prison island in isolated exile. He's cut off from his churches by a decree out of unholy Rome. Rome is the ascendant power. The gospel has proved weak and ineffective against the unstoppable evil of the empire. Two generations after the euphoria of Pentecost, it's thoroughly discredited. Everything St. John believed and preached is to all evidence a disaster. And then, without a single thing having happened in Rome or Asia, no earthquake, no revolution to change the government in Rome, St. John is on his feet. He has a message. The difference between St. John the prisoner and St. John the pastor is Christ in vision and reality. By virtue of the vision, the crushed exile becomes a vigorous prophet. That's what I hope happens for you. Because John's vision of Jesus isn't just descriptive church, it's transformative. So that when this week you run into conflict and you see the eyes of somebody who disdains you, you'll remember the eyes of Christ who knows you. When you feel the shaking of foundations underneath you, you'll be reminded of the bronze feet that communicate a firm foundation. And then think of this, where does John see him? Here's the second thing. 
He's in the midst of the lampstands. This glorious one is in the middle of churches. (laughs) Messed up, broken churches. We'll learn more about them over the next three weeks and you'll see, man, they are far from perfect. They're, They're church people. Church people do what church people do. Some things are going awesome. Some some things are a mess. And yet, here's the thing. Nancy Guthrie says he chooses to be in and among his imperfect people who follow him and serve him in imperfect ways. So it shouldn't surprise you if Every church has some things that are commendable and some things that deserve critique. And yet, here's the thing. The church is the means by which God chose to advance his kingdom in the world. You, Christian, you and me, and our church, we're God's plan A. (laughs) Like, we're it. (laughs) Warts and all. He, He planted this church at the corner of 96th in town. He brought us together in 2022. He put your soul in that little cell and brought you to this city, to this church, for this moment because the long-robed, golden-sashed one with brilliant white hair and blazing eyes and stable footing is on the move. The one who holds the universe in his hand, whose word is powerful, whose glory is unbelievable. Jesus is in the middle of his church and we need to be reminded who he is so we can keep going. Where are you? Who's Jesus? Third, what's next? The introduction to Revelation concludes with a commission for John and for us, but it begins with humility. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Did he faint? Did he get blown over? Did he just collapse? We don't know. All we know is John went down. The vision of Jesus so overwhelmed his humanity that the next thing John knows is he's down. And then notice what happens next. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus lays his right hand on John. And he says to him, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Woo! That'll make you get up. All of this is reassurance language. Jesus, like the Father, is before and after all things. The most powerful and fearful thing in our humanity, namely death, has no hold on him. And because of the victory of the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus holds the keys of of death and the grave. In other words, as one commentator says, he is in control of who gets locked up and who gets liberated. So John is told to write in verse 19. 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. This could serve as the outline of the entire book. John's role is to record what he sees, what's true, and what's coming. Which is why verse 20 makes the connection between the seven stars, the seven golden lampstands, the angels, and the seven churches. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, what's gonna be remarkable when we start next week to look at these churches All of those characteristics that John saw, the white hair, the blazing eyes, the golden sash, those things appear in the letters to the churches. In other words, Jesus applies in his commendation and critique the essence of his character to the life of the church. It's as though Jesus says, this is what you're like, this is what I'm like, what are we gonna do about this? And that serves to motivate God's people to keep going all the way to the end. So what's next? John's vision is meant to be worked out in the lives of real Christians who are living in hard places in their generation. So in light of that reality, let me ask you a few questions. Where are you? What are the unique challenges that you're facing right now? Do you sense difficulty and hardship around you? Do you know that suffering and tribulation are a part of the Christian life? Do you know that God has placed you in this moment in history, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your job, in this city, and in this church, and he's done it on purpose because he wants the church to advance. Where are you? Who's Jesus? Second question. What do you need to be reminded about in terms of who Jesus is? When when, when you read this text, What do you need to see? John's vision of this long-robed, golden-sashed, brilliant white hair, blazing eyes, stable-footing savior who's on the move is meant to encourage you and to help you. He holds the universe in his hand. His word is powerful. His glory will knock you off your feet. He was dead, and now he's alive. Some of you are living Like Jesus is still in the grave. The devil isn't going to win. And then finally, what's next? Consider what in your life right now, today, needs to change in light of this text. Some of you, you're giving the devil too much authority. Some of you are giving the world too much power. Some of you have expectations that need to be brought right today to the foot of the cross and say, I am done with these expectations that are robbing me of my joy. Some of you need an attitude adjustment about hardship and realize 
it's going to be hard. But I'm going to make it. Jesus is going to help me. What, what needs to be refocused in your heart and soul? Are there particular sins in your life that the blazing-eyed Savior knows and sees that need to be repented from? John hears these words, write what you see. Here's my exhortation, church. Receive what you see. Stand in the right place. Know where you are. See the right vision. Because this book is here to help you make it to the end. It's like we heard last week, blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. Help us, Lord Jesus, to persevere with a vision of who you are and an understanding of what it means to trust in your ability to help us. God, help us to see the technical beauty of this text, but then to see how it helps us with our trouble and how to be able to make it. Lord, I pray for Christians today who have come to church weary, exhausted, fearful. Would you alleviate that struggle today by helping them to see you, Jesus, for who you are. Help us to see the glorious vision of a risen Christ who says, I was dead, but I'm alive. God, by your spirit we pray, even right now, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.